Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and I'm joined from Tallahassee by Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy. Hey, John. Hello, Zach. And joining me from Pembroke Pines is Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. Howdy, Antonio. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis rolled out a proposal this week to crack down on efforts by big tech companies to police their content. We'll discuss the governor's foray into an issue that has conservatives fired up. An effort being led by two South Florida lawmakers to punish Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene over her incendiary comments and the early rumblings in the 2022 governor's race. But first. Gentlemen, you have some numbers today. How about you, John? I did come packing a number this week and it's 500 million or if you prefer half a billion. How about you, Antonio? Well, you know my mantra, John goes high, I go low. 275. 275. And I'm right in the middle here with the 25,000. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll let you know what they mean for Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, the criticism of big tech companies among conservatives has been building for years, but it reached a fever pitch after Twitter took away Donald Trump's account following the riot at the U.S. Capitol earlier this month. Tech companies took action in the wake of relentless efforts by Trump to overturn the election, which fed the frenzy that resulted in a pro-Trump mob overrunning the Capitol. Twitter, Facebook, and others say they're trying to prevent people from inciting violence, but conservatives view it as a free speech issue. DeSantis said big tech censorship is, quote, one of the greatest threats to American self-government in the 21st century. John, You were at the governor's press conference. What are your takeaways? Well, the governor's news conference was kind of like watching Fox News' Hannity or Laura Ingram. The uh, governor was joined by the House Speaker and Senate President and a couple of uh, leading legislators, all Republicans, blasting away at these tech companies, which, of course, have come under fire from conservatives for banning former President Trump and uh, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, and some 70,000 other accounts for uh, inciting the violence at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, basically trading in violent tinged conspiracies and uh, other shares that violated the uh, platform policies of these companies. Uh, Also, Parler, of course, the uh, conservative social media app was taken down by Apple and Google app stores after it was used to share a lot of the insurrection information used in that deadly January 6th attack. Uh, Conservatives say they are being victimized and they want to punish companies like Facebook and Twitter when they remove people. The legislation they're looking at in Florida would force these companies to to notify people whose accounts they're looking to suspend or close. Uh, that, That presumably would give them a chance to plead their case or go public squawking about it. Uh, uh, The legislation they're envisioning also would impose fines and uh, even let Florida's attorney general sue them for unfair or deceptive business practices. Uh, These companies have an awful lot of money, but it's becoming very easy that it really isn't that uh, easy being uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. Uh, uh, DeSantis and House Speaker Chris Sprouls uh, and Senate President Wilton Simpson seem to be playing to a very rabid Republican base, which is uh, steaming mad about the deplatforming of Donald Trump and feels that the censoring, as they like to call it, uh, is all one way. 
that uh, liberal leaners don't face the same sanctions. And DeSantis seized on that by saying that there was no penalty for those claiming that Trump colluded with Russia in winning the 2016 election, something that investigations by a special prosecutor and a Senate committee have uh, found no direct evidence of. Uh, DeSantis, in his news conference, got to fire away at what he called Silicon Valley oligarchs and also uh, big tech acting like big brother. Uh, Sprouls made reference to the uh, five families, uh, you know, like like Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Alphabet, and Apple. Like they're there's some kind of mafia crime families. Yeah, so- sounds like uh, the Godfather Part Four. Here. Oh, exactly. Like you're ripping from the uh, you know the the, the script of uh, the Sopranos or something. But uh, they they also raised the possibility of these companies uh, suspending the account of a conservative candidate running for office. This is a possibility, I guess, as they see it, uh, something that they said would be a killer for a candidate and a prohibition that they'd also like to see imposed uh, on these uh, social media giants. Uh, So it it was all great theater. Now, uh, will it amount to anything? That's another story. Uh, Simpson, in his comments, acknowledged that the regulation of social media platforms is a job likely for Congress, not the state of Florida. But Congress has been hesitant to weigh into this fight fully and is uh, still struggling to figure out just what should be done. And, you know, we all remember it was only a few years ago that people on the political left were criticizing these companies for allowing uh, Russian misinformation farms to uh, advertise on their sites uh, with uh, information that they contended hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign against Trump and that he had benefited from social media's uh, lack of self-policing. Uh, liberals want more accountability then and and still now, I think, from these companies. Now it's uh, DeSantis and the political right that's uh, doing all the screaming, though. Uh, these companies historically have been reluctant to sen- censor posts about conspiracy theories and fake news, and they're protected by a 25-year-old law that created Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And uh, that gives them some immunity from any liability for hosting content. But they are acting now with uh, some of taking down some of these posts after that January 6th insurrection. And uh, that's what's kind of brought them under the microscope of Fox News and Ron DeSantis and organizations like Project Veritas, uh, a right wing uh, investigative arm. So, you know, there's talk in Congress of uh, limiting or repealing Section 230 to make these companies legally liable for postings, which uh, clearly Zuckerberg and others don't want. Uh, Trump talked about doing that last spring. And uh, there's also more calls for these companies to start regulating the way uh, self-regulating the way other technologies have done in the past, like movies, uh, video game companies, uh, broadcasting and other technologies. They've they've, uh, somewhat policed themselves to try to tamp down this opposition. So we're maybe beginning to see the the, the early stages of that right now with these deplatforming efforts, but they're uh, being handled in such a way as to stir up this conservative opposition. Uh, for Florida, I'm expecting something to pass this legislative session that looks to slap the social media companies. Now, how it could be enforced going after a global company within the borders of Florida is difficult to understand. But DeSantis and others want to make a splash on this and send a message to Congress that Florida wants action on this issue. So I'm thinking that maybe the legislation will uh, won't uh, really take effect immediately, but maybe uh, give it a, a year as far as any of these penalties that would uh, sort of uh, spur Congress to try to act. Um, 
Other states may also weigh into this debate during this legislative session uh, period uh, this year, and uh, that might give more oomph to the idea. But it looks like the uh, discussion of social media company regulation is is here to stay for a while. And John, you make a good point. It's not just conservatives criticizing these social media and other big tech companies. Liberals have been very critical of them as well, but they've kind of criticized them for the opposite reason. They say they're not going far enough to police their content and that they've allowed a lot of false information um, to percolate and and uh, and information that uh, you know is inciting violence. It, it could almost be argued that these efforts by Twitter and others to deplatform Trump and to take down some of this content is a way to get ahead of some of that criticism from the left, which is now in power in Congress, in, in both the House and the Senate, and, and obviously having a Democrat, Joe Biden, in the presidency. It's kind of a, a tricky balancing act for them, isn't it? You know, you have criticism from the left that they need to do more to police this content and possible federal regulation uh, to that end, and criticism from the right that uh, this is censorship and possibly state-level uh, regulation. The idea that what happens in Florida could could pass in Congress is probably unlikely, right, with Democrats? I mean, this is probably like a, whatever happens in Florida could be an example of what might happen if the Republicans take over um, in, in uh, the, the midterm elections, right? Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what, what we're seeing is maybe the beginning of this movement coming out of Florida, and maybe we'll see it in other states, too. I know New York even has talked about some kind of regulation, stricter regulation of social media companies. But, um, you know, whether or not this is an example of the companies trying to self-police but in this case, it is something that has been directed at conservatives. That's, uh, you know, kind of stirred up uh, that conservative base. But um, it does look like we're moving in the direction where there will be some kind of limits either imposed by Congress or enacted by the social media companies themselves that try to get at the kind of really you know, inflammatory posts that have been going out there and are shared widely. It, it, it's somewhat ironic, too, that, you know, there, there's a recent uh, New York University study that looked at uh, uh, interactions on, on Facebook, and it kind of debunks this idea that conservatives are being targeted. Uh, Trump overwhelmingly has more social media interactions on uh, Twitter and Facebook than any other individual politician. Uh, it, it was something like uh, five times the level that uh, the second place finisher was Bernie Sanders. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's people that kind of capture the uh, the media spotlight, sort of capture the imagination of a, of a large swath of Americans right now that seem to be the people that are getting the most attention. And uh, yeah, I guess when it comes to discipline, they're also going to get the most attention from uh, the public when uh, these media companies try to do something to rein them in, especially if they're doing something like Trump and uh, Parler and Mike Lindell were doing uh, that led up to January 6th. Well, this issue, uh, this bill being pushed by DeSantis does have a lot of appeal to the GOP base. I know that because I was doing interviews this week uh, for my weekend column talking to people about impeachment and two different Republicans that I spoke to uh, brought this up out of the blue independently. You know, I didn't ask them about, um, you know, social media censorship, but they, um, you know, were uh, saying uh, that, that uh, they were really upset about what happened to Parler and and about what happened to Trump. So this, this is an issue that appeals to the base. And, um, you know, DeSantis uh, needs uh, the Republicans behind him as he runs for reelection in 2022. 
Well, while the governor rails against big tech, Florida lawmakers are going after one of their QAnon-loving colleagues from Georgia over her comments declaring the school shooting that left 17 people dead in Parkland was a, quote, false flag. Florida Democrat Ted Deutsch, who represents Parkland, has said Marjorie Taylor Greene should be expelled from Congress. Lawmakers are considering stripping Greene of her committee assignments for the Parkland comments and many others, including expressing doubts that a plane hit the Pentagon on 9-11 and calling for executing Democratic leaders. Florida Republican Marco Rubio addressed Greene's comments recently, saying that it's a fair game to, to scrutinize them, but adding that she's getting too much media attention. Antonio, Democrats are trying to label the GOP the party of QAnon and make Marjorie Taylor Greene sort of the poster child, just as Republicans have tried to tie every Democrat to liberals such as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Is that an effective strategy, and should the GOP be doing more to distance itself from Green? Well, speaking of social media conspiracies and whatnot, here we are. You know, yeah, that's an interesting question. Right now, to be honest, it looks like an effective strategy for everyone. Uh, it's an effective strategy for Democrats to rally around and deliver a post-insurrection message. It's unlikely, for example, that the impeachment of former President Trump is going to end in a conviction in the Senate. So the push by the Democratic majority in the House to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments is a way for Democrats to show legislative muscle and more authority and to draw a contrast, as you said, with the Republicans who reportedly not only chastised legitimate conservative Lynn Cheney of Wyoming on Wednesday evening, they apparently also gave Green a standing ovation at a closed door meeting on Capitol Hill. So, so you know, for them, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a way of drawing this contrast. Now, for the GOP, you almost think they believe Democrats are doing them a favor. By voting to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from the committees, it saves the GOP from another factious battle. So they so they concentrated their firepower and inter, internal war on reprimanding and upbraiding Liz Cheney, the number three leader in the House Republican caucus. So she survived a, a vote Wednesday to keep her vote, I mean, to keep her post. Uh, that ended that fight. And now if Dems remove Greene, then the GOP can complain that they were a victim of process, quote unquote, and not actually have to take action against Greene themselves. And for Green, well, she said the effort to kick her off the budget and labor slash education committees has helped her raise more than $1 million. Plus, not being on the committees would spare her from having to do real legislative work and allow her to focus more on conspiracies. So it kind of looks like a win-win-win here. Um, you know, that being said, the push to oust her from the committees put Florida congressional lawmakers in the spotlight. You had you know, South Florida Democrats, Ted Deutsch and Debbie Wasserman Schultz did lead the charge to remove, have led the charge to remove her from the committees. They can't expel her from Congress, but they can essentially isolate her and leave her fairly powerless by taking her off these, these two committees. So Deutsch and Wasserman Schultz have been out there on the bully pulpit. They've appeared on cable news channels. And of course, Wasserman Schultz filed House Resolution 72, which is the legislative measure to kick Green off the committees. That legislation, that resolution is now headed to a House uh, vote in the House floor. Uh, for Deutsch and Wasserman Schultz, this effort was personal. Both represent Broward County districts, and that's where Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School is located. And Green slighted and insulted the communities and residents there, you know, who already suffered a lot from the mass shooting that took place almost three years ago this month. And then there was a creepy video of Green following Parkland survivor and activist David Hogg around uh, Capitol Hill. Now, speaking of that video, Green was harassing Hogg 
asking him how come he met with 30 U.S. senators and she couldn't get a meeting with one. Memo to voters in Georgia, maybe they should elect David Hogg to Congress because it seems he has a lot more clout than Green. Uh, for Democrats voting on Green's committee ouster, there's also this political calculation that you referred to earlier, Zach, and that is an opportunity to brand Green as the face of today's Republican Party. And, and Republicans certainly have contributed to that effort by embracing Green, putting her, putting her on those coveted committees, and then refusing to take action to banish her from them after the revelation of her outlandish and insulting claims and rhetoric. And in fact, a, a morning consult political poll this week said that nearly half of those surveyed know who Green is, despite the fact that she hasn't been in Congress, you know, for, you know, had been in Congress for basically a month. Uh, those are like AOC, you know, rocket-like numbers. The problem is only 13% of those who know of Green have a favorable view of her. That's not a good look for her or the GOP. Well, you go back to the last uh, election, Antonio, and, and every Democrat who was running for Congress, you know, they're, they're asked about, uh, you know, do you support the Green New Deal? You know, do you support defunding the police? Do you support Nancy Pelosi for speaker? I mean, it's a time-tested strategy to tie members of a party to the most liberal elements or, I'm sorry, the most extreme elements, liberal or conservative, of 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 their party. Um, I, I just wonder, uh, you know, is is, do, is that what you see developing with Marjorie Taylor Greene? And 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 in, in a lot of ways, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily fair to compare her to somebody who has extreme policy views because her views are just, um, you know, flat out wrong. I mean, saying that Parkland didn't happen and was a false flag is. It's just uh, ridiculous. And uh, obviously, uh, a lot of Republicans have come out and said that. Rick Scott came out uh, and said she doesn't represent the Republican Party. And what she said about Parkland um, is disgusting and wrong. But uh, I mean, um, is this an issue? Do you think do you think her name and her face is going to keep coming up uh, unless Republicans take more forceful action here? And uh, do you think that they can do anything to really uh, stop that? Because, I mean, they're not going to be able to uh, kick her out of Congress. No, I know. Okay, you're absolutely right. That's a, that's going to be a big issue. And, it, that, and yeah, this is a time tested strategy to find the most the, the most firebrand, the most polarizing figure of the opposite party, and then try to tie everybody with that person. The problem is that when it comes to like an AOC, there's policy involved. You know, there's the Green New Deal, for example. And, you know, there are people that are going to agree with that and there are people who are not going to agree with that and it becomes very partisan. That's the way it works. The problem with Marjorie Taylor Greene is that what she is saying are things or, or she is endorsing are views such as that nobody flew planes into the World Trade Center or into the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. That's, you know. That's, you know, if you're it's crazy talk, you I mean, we can yeah. we can we could say that. I mean, it's it's crazy. Obviously, 9-11 happened. Uh, Parkland happened. These things happen to, to suggest otherwise is 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 disturbing. I watched the Rules Committee uh, virtual hearing on Wednesday and every Republican who spoke all had to do these these oratorical acrobatics to basically condemn what she said. And then find a way of saying, yeah, but it's it's a, we're, we're complaining about the process. So this should go through the ethics committee. It is a very difficult, you know, this for the American public. It's they don't see process. They don't see the ethics committee right. versus the rules committee. They see the final result. And the final result here is that you got somebody 
who's saying crazy stuff that should not that should not be in debate in Congress. And, and this is where you're getting the frustration that you mentioned earlier from Marco Rubio. And he said, you know, don't make these people famous. Don't help them raise money. Don't elevate their conspiracy theories. The problem is it's his own party from the former president to the House members across the Capitol that are the ones that have elevated her. They gave her these plum assignments. I mean, the Budget Committee is a really important assignment. The Education Labor Committee is a really important assignment. Yeah, I mean, the the Budget Committee, I mean, they're, they're talking about funding uh, you know, counterterrorism efforts. If Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't believe that, you know, in some of the terrorist attack that nine eleven, uh, I mean, it, it does. Some of these comments do tie into what policies she could be asked to uh, oversee, right? Exactly, particularly in education. What about you know? There's the great debate about whether you know. There's been in the, in this state, we've seen a debate about arming teachers, about you know, safe zones, school zones, and I mean, this this is going to filter into politics. So, look at the end of the day. You know, we're all talking political strategies, but political strategies don't really matter right now. I mean, what the reality is, Green has been embraced by the Republican Party and they have given her a seat at the table. And in doing so, they've opened the door to and they've rolled out the welcome mat to these far right and extremist constituencies. And now they're going and when it gets to 2022 and 2024, they're going to have to defend that and they're going to be tarred by that. And they're and it's not because they're just being tarred by it, it is because they welcomed them. They opened the door to them and they didn't, they didn't take action to distance themselves from that and to disavow it. And I think it's going to be that. Yeah. They're, they're, they're going to have to sell this. They're going to have to defend it. Well, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about Marjorie Taylor green in the next uh, election cycle. And uh, it, that cycle is not as far away as some people might think. Uh, there's already rumblings of uh, 2022, including uh, uh, the governor's race uh, here in Florida. The former uh, governor, Charlie Crist, made some news this week during an interview with television reporter Jim DeFeedy. Crist told DeFeedy that running for governor again, quote, is something that I would be open to. Later in the interview, he said, quote, I'm opening my brain to the idea. Chris Rand is a Democrat for governor against Rick Scott in 2014 and lost. He served as a Republican governor before that. It sounds like he might uh, take a crack at unseating DeSantis. John, you've been covering Chris for years. What do you make of his comments? Well, I'm frankly uh, surprised that he still would consider another statewide run. He's uh, he's done it six times before and has a uh, three and three one loss record when you add up his uh, two races for cabinet seats, two runs for U.S. Senate and uh, and two campaigns for governor. Uh, as you mentioned, he lost in 2014 to Rick Scott when Scott won re-election to a second term and Chris was making his his first run as a Democrat. He'll uh, he'll be 66 when the next governor's race takes place. Uh, that's not too old, but he uh, he left the governor's office after one term 10 years ago uh, last month. So he'd be uh, having to really reintroduce himself to a lot of voters. And he does, uh, another question hanging over this will be, does he fit into a Florida Democratic Party that continues to struggle, uh, you know, that had a very bad performance in the November election cycle in this state and uh, seems like uh, Chris is looking to position himself as a centrist in uh, supporting 
law enforcement, for example, when the uh, call for reevaluating police tactics and equity issues and Black Lives Matter seems to be a driving issue for Democrats here and nationwide. And, uh, and of course, he's a former Republican. So he's got some corporate tax cutting and tough on crime history that would uh, it really not looked so well with modern Democrats. Remember, he he enjoyed getting the nickname uh, Chain Gang Charlie during his time in the Florida Senate. So so I don't know. He he seems like a candidate uh, who uh, you know from 2014. Uh, maybe that was his uh, his era. You know, and uh, John, what do you what what's your sense of how strong of a candidate Christ would be? Because you know, Biden is a centrist, you know, and and sort of an establishment uh, type candidate, and and he 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 defeated Trump. Uh, you know, there's a I think maybe a sense, you know, the Democrats nominated Andrew Gillum uh, to run against DeSantis in uh, twenty uh, in the last election cycle in 2018, and 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 uh, and Gillum was defeated, although by a very uh, a narrow margin, a very progressive candidate. There's a a thought that maybe um, you know they uh, you know they they nominated the wrong person, and that somebody more like Gwen Graham, uh, you know, more of a centrist uh, uh, might do better. I mean, Chris has some baggage. Um, you know, there, there obviously is a lot of anti-establishment energy in politics right now, and he's been around a long time, but so is Biden. Um, but it also seems like, you know, women do better on the Democratic ticket. You know, the only uh, Democrat to win uh, a statewide race recently is Nikki Freed, the agriculture commissioner. Do you think Chris is a strong candidate? Yeah, well, that's it. Uh, he, he's looking at people like uh, Nikki Freed, who's been often mentioned as a potential candidate to run against DeSantis in 2022. Uh, the Anna Escamani, a state house member from uh, or the Orlando area, seems to be making rumbling like she might run for governor. And uh, the state senator Jason Pizzo is another from my Miami area is another name that comes up every now and again as a, you know, a, a gubernatorial candidate, maybe in his own mind anyway. Uh, so uh, I think Chris, yeah, is maybe doing that calculation where he's thinking you have a lot of candidates right now from the political left that are uh, toying with the idea of running. Uh, maybe Christ could somehow answer the middle uh, ground of Florida, you know, where uh, uh, clearly uh, this is a a red tilting state. It's it's not a completely red state, but uh, it seems to default Republican in statewide elections. And uh, Chris, possibly by his uh, middle of the road uh, uh, appeal, and we got to look back. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny because you know, oddly for a converted Republican, when he ran in 2014, he was seen as a candidate that could ca- capitalize on the Obama coalition of minority voters and mainstream Democrats in his race against. St- Scott. But uh, the state party that year failed him in that race when it came to voter turnout. And voter turnout continues to haunt Democrats, uh, proof of it being uh, Trump's easy win in Florida in November and the Democrats' loss of seats in Congress and the state legislature. Um, You know, we Kennedys like to talk about the torch is passed. And uh, I wonder with Chris if it's not time for him to acknowledge that. But maybe he does see himself as uh, uh, the the centrist answer to a party that is looking for somebody that can have appeal to uh, conservative Floridians as well as uh, that progressive base of the Democratic Party. Yeah, uh, it does seem like, uh, you know, that uh, the progressives have have struggled. So um, a centrist uh, candidate might uh, have a little bit more of a selling point right now. Well, we'll go on to our numbers here. Antonio, uh, you had 275. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, $275 is the maximum amount those filing for unemployment in Florida can expect to get for the next for 12 weeks, uh, assuming that they, they are granted it. Uh, with all the talk of vaccines and businesses reopening, we forget that the pandemic's economic crisis is still a very real and for many people a very difficult reality uh, for many, many Floridians. And so, you know, we, we were hope we were looking at a uh, bipartisan state committee that has been tasked with the with coming up with ways to get through the current pandemic and prepare for future ones. We 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 were told that they might address the failings in Florida's jobless safety net, everything from the the issues that uh, people had trying to access the website and, and file for unemployment to the comparatively low $275 a week uh, for 12 weeks unemployment benefit. But it looks like that committee is not going to address this. Um, you know, they have said that uh, you know, they, they, they will be looking at every aspect of the pandemic, but the 275, 275 weekly unemployment benefit is not going to be on their radar. Uh, just so that you know, the, the 275 figure is the, the equivalent of $6.88 per hour was set back in 1998. That was uh, 23 years ago. At the time, uh, that 275 a week was 29% higher than Florida's minimum wage, which was then $5.15 per hour. Um, you know, since then, uh, you know, times have changed. And today, that same 275 is 23% below the state's minimum wage of $8.65 per hour. And it will be 40% low the minimum wage of $10 per hour that takes effect September 30th. That low rate is one reason the job finder website Zipia.com rated Florida's unemployment system as the least supportive in the country based on its ranking in the states with the lowest weekly payouts and time spans. Zipia had Florida in a three-way tie for worst with Alabama and Tennessee uh, for the fourth worst weekly dollar benefit. But Tennessee and Alabama provided jobless aid for 26 weeks, more than double Florida's 12 weeks, according to Zipia. Even Mississippi, which had the lowest weekly weekly payout at $235, also provided help for 26 weeks, as did second worst Arizona and third worst Louisiana, according to Zipia's ranking. Uh, Yet, despite that low payout, uh, Florida shows no inclination to adjust adjust its jobless weekly benefit. And for those looking for work and to get back on their feet, there, there are mixed signals. This month's Miami International Boat Show has been canceled, as has West Palm Beach's Sunfest Music Festival, which had been scheduled for late April. That's a real blow to the tourism, hospitality industries and the vendors that really depend on these types of events, you know, to make their weekly paychecks. Um, However, a survey released this week said that 56 percent of those asked said they plan to travel again this year, presumably after they get their vaccines. You know, Florida is a tourist tourist-dependent state, and so many of our unemployed are counting on a return of visitors, and they're going to have to count on that because it doesn't look like they're going to get any help from Tallahassee. I wonder if one reason state lawmakers aren't considering increasing the unemployment benefit is because the federal government has kind of bailed them out. You know, the uh, the latest um, coronavirus stimulus package that was passed before the end of last year uh, extended the federal unemployment supplement uh, through March. Uh, It decreased from $600 a month to $300 a month. But without that extra $300, I think there would have been 
a lot more pressure on uh, state lawmakers to do something about this. But uh, I think the federal government has sort of bailed them out a little bit. John, uh, 500 million. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm kind of diving into the workaday world, too, with 500 million is dollars. And that's the amount over expectations that state tax collections came in for the months of December and January. Uh, half a billion dollars, more than expected. This number is significant, especially in the wake of Governor DeSantis releasing his uh, $96.6 billion state budget proposal for next year, because a lot of the governor's spending plan is contingent on things staying good in Florida, or at least you know, definitely getting better in the months ahead. You'll, uh, you'll remember that we've talked on this show uh, a couple of months ago about how state economists had revised what was already a pretty grim revenue forecast, uh, improving it some, but still leaving the state facing what they thought at that time would be a $2 billion budget hole because of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, DeSantis's budget, which was released uh, just minutes before we did our show last week, uh, it kind of papers over that budget hole with lots of money from the federal government and to a great extent, a reliance on tax collections doing well going forward. Uh, at the time, the governor pointed to the December increase over what was expected. That was about $337 million more than estimators, uh, well, they had estimated. And and just this week, we learned that uh, collections are, uh, for, for the month of January, were another $200 million over forecast. So uh, put it together, we're talking about more than half a billion dollars, more than anticipated. And uh, DeSantis was predicting that those uh, collections will continue to get better in the next couple of months as legislators who will actually put together the state budget start uh, compiling it. Um, now, now, maybe state economists were too doomsday in their budget forecast, thinking that the state's uh, bounce back wasn't for real uh, after that initial budget shock of a very bleak uh, spring uh, with tax receipts really plummeting when uh, the economy was uh, so frozen. Uh, you can also debate, and many have, whether Florida took the right approach with the pandemic, refusing to do the kind of lockdowns and business closures that we've seen in other states. Uh, cases in this state are still sky high, close to uh, 10,000 a day over the past week. But DeSantis's refusal to reinstate any lockdowns has kept Florida's economy limping along. And these tax collections are starting to reflect it. After a uh, you know, sales tax collection in Florida had cratered by $1.8 billion through last spring. And uh, sales tax, of course, is the biggest share of the state's tax receipts. And uh, obviously, it's very heavily tied to commercial activity. So maybe Florida dodges a budget bullet uh, because we have stayed open so much. Uh, DeSantis seems to think so. And if the Biden administration and Congress now also come through with a go big package of aid to the states in the next round of relief, uh, Florida's spending for next year on schools, social services and healthcare programs could you know, really look a lot like they did any other year, pandemic or not. So maybe there is uh, some budget hope out there. Well, John, your uh, comment about uh, DeSantis's uh, wide open coronavirus policy kind of touches on what uh, what my number uh, hints at here, which is 25,000. That's the number of fans who will be in attendance Sunday when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers play the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 55 in Tampa. That's the lowest attendance at a Super Bowl uh, in the game's history. And by a long shot, the first Super Bowl in 1967 had just under 62,000 
thousand fans, which was the record for the lowest attendance until this year. That first game also included the Chiefs, who were then playing the Packers, the team the Bucks beat to make it to their only their second Super Bowl in franchise history. Raymond James Stadium, where Super Bowl 55 uh, will be played, can hold uh, nearly 66,000 fans, so it will be less than half full on Sunday. That means Florida's bars and restaurants, which are allowed to operate at full capacity under the direction of the governor, can be at a greater capacity than the Super Bowl. DeSantis said in September that he wanted a full stadium for the Super Bowl, but the NFL decided that that wasn't wise. And it's not just the NFL. Disney World is still operating at 35% capacity. DeSantis likes to rail against blue states that have tighter coronavirus restrictions. You don't hear him criticizing Disney, though. The fact that Disney and the NFL don't think it's smart to have their businesses operating at full capacity shows that there's still significant concerns about the governor's wide-open approach not just among Democrats, but among business owners as well, which is exactly who the governor claims to be helping. Well, that wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.